So for the past week, I've gotten questions from you guys, including, Hey Gil, if you were in a jigsaw trap, what would it be? I can honestly tell you that if Jigsaw were to tell me that in order to survive, I would either have to watch the Denver Broncos give up 70 points to the Miami Dolphins or gouge out my own eyes, I would reach for that scalpel immediately. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. Today is our third and final episode of Saw Timber. You've been with me the whole way from Saw 1 all the way to Saw 6, and now it's time we round out this marathon and get to the final three movies in the franchise before Saw 10. Those three movies that I'm going to review today are Saw 3D, also known as the final chapter, Jigsaw, and Spiral from the Book of Saw. But before we get to the films, I want to announce that the podcast is officially on X, or Twitter if you still call it Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow the show with the username PCWithGill, so you get alerts, behind-the-scenes content, I'll do some contests, community events, and any announcements that are to come. And there, I have also officially released my October episode schedule, so you can see what's in store for Spooky Season as we get all the way into October. It's my favorite time of the year, and I can't wait to show you guys what I have in store for it. Now, let's get back to today's main event and talk about Saw. In 2010, Lionsgate announced that Saw 7 would be the final film in the franchise. It would also become the first film in the series to feature 3D, thus taking on the title theatrically, Saw 3D. Little did we know that they would go back on their word and release three more films afterwards, but nevertheless, Saw 3D was officially dubbed the final chapter to the saga, and it's time that we see if it's worthy of Jigsaw's legacy. So in Saw the Final Chapter, as a deadly battle rages over Jigsaw's brutal legacy, a group of Jigsaw survivors gathers to seek the support of self-help guru, fellow survivor Bobby Dagan, a man whose own dark secrets unleash a new wave of terror. Saw the Final Chapter is directed by Kevin Grudert, written by Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan again, and it stars Costas Mandalore as Detective Mark Hoffman, Betsy Russell as Jill Tuck, Sean Patrick Flannery as Bobby Dagan, Tobin Bell as John Kramer, and, as we all expected, Carrie Elwes returns as Lawrence Gordon. Of the seven main Saw films, 3D or Final Chapter, whatever you want to call it, this is the installment that I've watched the least. I think I only watched it one time, and that was on DVD rental. And it's the one that I refuse to watch ever again, especially after this. Something stood out to me, such as, spoiler alert, Gordon's big reveal, Chester Bennington glued to a car seat, and Mark Hoffman being an indestructible killing machine. Saw 3D, the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo, is the lowest reviewed film in the series too, holding currently at 9% on uh, Rotten Tomatoes with critical reception and 41% of audiences approving of it. It's universally panned and incredibly forgettable. And much like the series is, like The Walking Dead, Terminator, 
Saw kind of outstayed its welcome by this point. And although Saw 6 was better than the previous three films before it, this movie didn't do enough to recapture the magic that Saw 1 and 2 did. I've mentioned in the previous Saw Timber episodes that I anticipated this third podcast the most because these three films that we're reviewing today are almost completely cleared from my mind, making this review almost feel like it's coming from a fresh new perspective. Last episode, I made the bold statement of saying that Saw 5 was likely the worst film in the entire series from a technical standpoint, and (laughs) I was dead wrong. Saw 3D, the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo, is far worse. (laughs) But I will say that I had vastly more fun watching this movie than I did with Saw 5. But that's not really saying much. That's more of a moral victory. (laughs) Right from the first scenes of the movie, you can tell that they cut a lot of corners in the production of this movie, in its production design and the way that it's shot. To make way for the expensive 3D cameras, you can tell that they had to make do with bad shooting locations, poor special effects, shoddy acting, and piss-poor writing, which is surprising considering these are the same guys that have written every movie since Saw 4. And this, I think, is the worst written one so far. And even a scene as simple as just the survivors of these jigsaw traps gathering together in a room to talk about their traumatic past, it feels like it's shot on a green screen, and it's really awkward. It honestly gave me the same impressions that I had when I watched Tommy Wiseau's The Room. (laughs) It's pretty sad and pathetic. Now, a lot of movies that were made 10, 20 even 30 years prior to Saw 3D, look way more complete than this movie does. Last week I covered the diminishing returns on the movies from Saw 5 onwards, but Saw 3D still had the largest budget of any of the movies before it. There's no excuse why it should look this shitty. It honestly looks like a student film. And I, and I don't mean student film in the way that Saw 1 was filmed. Saw 1 had the spirit of an independent film, but it still felt like it was professionally made. Saw 3D literally feels like some college students that were given an unlimited amount of their daddy's money and were told to just go and make a Saw movie. It has the feel and design of those cheap... I don't know if you've seen them, but th- there are these cheap like Netflix knockoff movies that you sometimes see when you're browsing the collection... A few examples of that would be like Chop Kick Panda, <laughs> which is the equivalent of DreamWorks's Kung Fu Panda, or Tappy Toes, <laughs> which is uh, a cheap knockoff of Happy Feet, and my personal favorite, Atlantic Rim. <laughs> uh, the spiritual successor of Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim. Saw 3D could have literally been called like Buzzsaw or something like that, and it wouldn't have made a difference. It still would have felt like a cheap Netflix knockoff. (laughs) But you know what? Even though this movie looks shittier, it feels shittier, and it's off the rails narratively, I still think that it's more fun to watch than Saw 5. Saw 5's biggest problem is that it was incredibly boring and way too expository for its own good. Saw the final chapter is at least entertaining, even if a lot of it is unintentional hilarity. (laughs) For the first time ever, I would like to play for you a small sample of the high-quality acting that is displayed in this movie. The segment that I'm about to play 
comes around the halfway point in the movie when Jill Tuck is hiding out from Detective Hoffman. She's under the care of a new detective by the name of Matt Gibson. Here, Gibson goes on a tirade about how to approach the situation with Hoffman hot on their trail and desperate to find and kill Jill Tuck. Take a listen. Well, that's a real clever design. Yours or your husband's? Everything was him. Right, well, here's my problem. That was left for me and your fingerprints were all over it. When you told me Hoffman had it in for you, you didn't mention that it was because you tried to kill him. There's a new game going on. Does that surprise you? No. No? No. You're crazy. You know that? I knew you were crazy the minute I laid eyes on you. Crazy. Okay. This is what we're gonna do. Crazy. Till I catch Mark Hoffman, this is your new home. Get comfy. What makes you think you can't find me here? Jill, it's a safe house. Safe house. Safe house. You get it? <laughs> From the way he refers to Jill as the word crazy, to him meandering around the room aimlessly, putting his hands on his head and stuff, Chad Danella is putting together a Razzie caliber performance. My God, that was awful. (laughs) If you were to ignore the rest of the movie and only play this one scene, you would probably think it's made in a fucking porno. (laughs) That's how bad the acting is here. And speaking of porno, this movie is strangely, extremely hostile towards its female characters. I don't normally like to talk about the gender politics of a movie unless that movie is attempting to make a social statement like Barbie, for example. But this movie is horrific in its treatment of Jill Tuck, Joyce Dagan, all of Bobby's associates, and the young woman placed in the saw blade trap at the opening of the film. Jill, in particular, gets treated the worst, dude. (laughs) After appearing to be the heroine in Saw 6 because she got Hoffman into the reverse bear trap, this movie, she is a complete damsel in distress. She gets her face beaten in. She gets ripped apart while wearing revealing lingerie. During that scene, when she gets ripped apart, her boob pops out. And ultimately, in the end, she falls prey to the reverse bear trap herself. Not only that, Joyce gets burned alive when her husband can't complete his trial, and a young girl gets her head crushed in by a car in the junkyard trap. All of this is a culmination of just really bad writing, which is incredibly surprising since Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan have written four Saw movies up to this point. This movie revolves around Bobby Dagan, who is pretending to be a Saw trap survivor. He achieves a level of fame and popularity as a life coach and intervention specialist, even becoming an award-winning author of his own biography. His false prophecy makes him an easy target for John Kramer. I actually enjoy the themes and message of a person lying about surviving these horrific traps, taking advantage of the situation that these survivors have had to go through albeit that the character of Bobby is completely flat and devoid of personality. His trial revolves around him atoning for his lies and getting the people around him killed for propping up his ego. Now, Bobby's trial 
coincides with the ongoing investigation into Mark Hoffman. It's finally revealed by the police precinct that Mark Hoffman is the person behind carrying out the grisly murders after John Kramer's death. The Hoffman scenes are absolutely batshit crazy. (laughs) Almost every scene that he's in turns into a full-blown action sequence. There's no horror to what he's doing anymore. He's just blatantly killing cops without any consequences at this point. In the third act, we see him kill off Gibson, his partner, gas an entire SWAT team, knife down the entire police precinct, and get to Jill Tuck. The character basically becomes a Terminator, but not the Arnold Schwarzenegger one, the Robert Patrick one, who can liquefy himself to get into hard-to-reach places and kills without remorse or any challenge. The Hoffman plot in Saw, the final chapter, is so unintentionally hilarious to watch because he basically ties up every loose end with little to no resistance. (laughs) He just is doing what he wants to do at this point. I think there's even like a five minute log of events where he stabs about five or six cops in the neck in a row. (laughs) It's hilarious, dude. And I don't think it was intending to be that hilarious, but I found it funny. I think the writer's intention was to make Hoffman this unhinged killer going on a spree to appear like he was going to get away with it at the end. And the huge payoff was going to be that Gordon was finally the one person to capture and kill him. The issue with this is that the plot twist was so obviously hinted at, everyone could see what was going to happen from a mile away. Gordon's brought back very early on in the movie. He's sidelined throughout most of it, and then he comes back in the final five minutes. But when you're watching the movie, you're thinking, why would they have Carrie Elwes come back just for five minutes? He's obviously going to be a bigger player in the finale of the movie. And that's why the big payoff doesn't really work for me. It's so contrived and convoluted, and it's very obvious to see going forward. The movie wraps up with an extremely cheesy 3D shot of Gordon throwing the original saw at the screen before he locks Hoffman in the restroom and says the famous words, Game over. There's not a lot of catharsis in seeing Hoffman getting trapped in the bathroom, I gotta say. Because they made Hoffman so irrefutably indestructible, to me, I don't even think he's dead in that restroom. I think he might have done exactly what Eric Matthews did and just smashed his foot and slipped his leg out. There was no confirmation that Hoffman actually definitively died at the end of this movie. And it just kind of leaves me numb and unsatisfied. Now, Saw 5 last week received a 1 out of 5 from me. And although I had more entertainment and saw the final chapter, I also have to give it a 1 out of 5. Both movies are terrible in their own rights, but perhaps the final chapter can give us some really good traps and scares? Let's get to my three favorite traps and saw the final chapter. When they announced that this would be the final movie of the franchise, they decided to go bigger than ever. The seventh Saw movie features a whopping 13 traps, the most of any film to date, starting with the horsepower trap. I want to highlight the horsepower trap first, not only because it's the most memorable in the marketing of this movie, but because it also features the late, great Chester Bennington from Linkin Park. It has a very simplistic masochism to it. Evan, played by Bennington, 
has to rip himself free from his car seat in order to hit the brake lever to prevent the vehicle from careening off and killing his three best friends. Each person's death is brutal, and the prosthetics of Evan's back is gory and extremely detailed. I like the actual makeup work done on this trap. It's pretty awesome to see him like get ripped straight from the flesh like a string cheese. <laughs> But yeah, I I mostly remember it for Chester Bennington, and his screaming is iconic. I will always remember this trap, and I enjoyed it. Next up, I have the Impalement Wheel, which is a highly winnable trap that traps Bobby's assistant, Suzanne, on a rotating machine that will impale her face into three sharp pipes if Bobby cannot short-circuit the device that's causing her to rotate towards the spikes. In order to close the circuit... Bobby must then perform a hack squat to keep the current attached to her device while he's slowly being stabbed in the obliques. Bobby ultimately cannot keep the circuit closed, and Suzanne is brutally killed. The shot of her getting her face stabbed is pretty gory and it's spectacular. And lastly, we have the silence circle. This is the best trap of the film, hands down. It's a complex yet simple trap that involves Bobby's PR manager, Nina. Nina has a key that's trapped in her stomach attached to a fishing hook. Bobby has to fish out that key to stop four metal pipes from stabbing Nina in the throat. The added wrinkle to this puzzle, though, is that the pipes will accelerate towards Nina every time her scream registers above a certain decibel level. I love the use of silence and noise in this trap. It's never been done before, and I think it plays excellently here. The shots of Nina coughing up blood as Bobby is ripping the fishing hook from her intestines is insanely hard to watch. And, you know, I just kind of wish that this trap was used in an earlier film, because it's almost too good to have been wasted in Saw the Final Chapter. It's gory, it's simple, and it's extremely exciting to watch. I, I love the silent circle. This was an amazing trap. So those were the best traps of Saw the Final Chapter. Let's recap the worst ones. Starting with the Brazen Bull. Really cool name. Extremely mean-spirited and unwinnable. <laughs> I mentioned before how the story is so, so mean in the way that it mistreats the female characters here. Well, the Brazen Bull is a clear example of that. Bobby's wife, Joyce, is chained to a metal mechanism that will activate if Bobby cannot hoist himself up to a power coupler with his pectoral muscles. When Bobby naturally fails, Joyce is closed inside of a metal machine that turns out to be a furnace, and she is burned alive. Sure, the death is hard to watch and painful, but did they have to really put her on her knees for the entire movie? Also... Joyce is a relatively innocent character. She's naive to Bobby's deception and sort of just fell in love with him. Why does she have to be punished for his choice? Joyce was placed in a no-win situation and it ultimately cost her her life. Fuck this trap. Next up, we have the Lawnmower Trap, a throwaway game that is inserted as a flashback to one of the survivors' stories at the Jigsaw Survivor Roundtable. Sydney is pitted against a man named Alex, and the two must hang on to barbed wire longer than the other person. Below them is a large number of lawnmowers faced upside down, so the loser will fall and get chopped to bits. 
Sydney nonchalantly slaps Alex in the face. He falls, she wins, and that is that. It's so short, basic, and uninspired that we don't see the reason why she was there or how she got out there safely. Not to mention the CGI and green screen work here is atrocious. It looks like it was made straight out of the 90s. Next up, and this is the worst trap in the entire series in my opinion, the public execution. The public execution is not only highly implausible in its design, but in how the hell it was even built in the first place. This trap features a love triangle between Brad, Ryan, and Dina. Dina is secretly cheating on Brad with Ryan and vice versa. She is hung above her two lovers as they play tug-of-war with a saw blade. If Ryan and Brad cannot kill one another, then Dina herself is lowered onto the blade and she is killed instead. Tying into the theme that this film is so grotesquely mean-spirited towards women, Ryan and Brad ultimately both decide to let the half-naked Dina fall on the blade for them. <laughs> they even say, Dina, we're breaking up with you, right before she's killed. <laughs> wow. But my problem isn't necessarily with the trap. It's the fact that this trap takes place in the middle of a shopping plaza. It raises huge, lore-breaking questions. Like... How the fuck did Hoffman and John Kramer construct this in the public? How did they smuggle three people's unconscious bodies into the trap with so many people around? Why the hell is Jigsaw getting involved in the relationship issues of young people? I fucking hate this scene so much, man. It's so stupid. And the more you think about it, the more pissed off you'll get. Fuck the public execution. It's the it's hands down the worst trap in the entire series. Not just the movie. It's the worst in the entire series. <sighs> so, let's settle down a little bit. That trap got me riled up quite a bit. <laughs> but before we get to our next film, this is the part of the review where I will give you some filmmaking factoids. My first factoid for Saw 3D, the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo, is all about Carrie Elwes. Dr. Lawrence Gordon was supposed to appear in Saw 4 or 5. However... Elwes was in the midst of a legal battle against Lewinell and James Wan over his pay of the original Saw. When the lawsuit finally was resolved, Lionsgate officially got him back on board to finish the series. Having watched these past poor films, I have no reservation that Denston and Melton would have completely botched Gordon's character arc, so good on him to stay until the end. Here, he actually kind of gets a dignified ending. Now, despite receiving top billing on the cash sheet, Tobin Bell only appears for three minutes of the film's runtime. In fact, I found it utterly hilarious when he appears on screen with a backwards ball cap in the scene where he meets Bobby. It totally had a whole Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids vibe to it. <laughs> now, in a Massachusetts branch of Showcase Cinemas, this film was accidentally screened instead of the 3D animated film Megamind, which traumatized its young audience when they found out what was happening. <laughs> oh, I love that. Now, I mentioned last week that the poor box office performance of Saw 6 was a big reason why Saw 3D, the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo, was consolidated into a single film. 
but another film franchise also influenced that decision. That film franchise was Divergent. Divergent's finale, Allegiant, was supposed to be a two-part finale, but its poor box office and critical reception caused Lionsgate to buck the trend of two-part film series finales altogether. I bet you guys don't even remember Divergent. (laughs) I sure as hell don't. I know it came out around the same time as The Hunger Games and Harry Potter, but it was another one of those uh, teen flops that that was worse off than Twilight. (laughs) Now, in the support group scene, we see the returns of a few of the film franchise's veterans, including Greg Brick, who was Joseph Seed in Far Cry 5, but he also played Malik in Saw 5. We see Tanadra Howard, who played Simone from Saw 6. She was also the person that won Scream Queens and got a role onto Saw 6. And then we also see Addie, who was William's older diabetic assistant from Saw 6. She was the one that survived the hangman's noose trap. Now, despite the low marks, Saw 3D, the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo, was the highest grossing Saw film at the box office since Saw 4. I guess the tagline that it was the final film really worked with audiences. They actually believed it was the last one. (laughs) So they turned out for it. Now, I thought this movie was scraping the bottom of the barrel for the franchise. And if it weren't for Jigsaw or Spiral, I would have thought that this whole series went out with a total whimper. Now that we are officially through with the numerical Saw installments, let's go to the first movie in the marathon that I've never seen before. It's time we get to 2017's Jigsaw. In Jigsaw, bodies are turning up around the city, each having met a uniquely gruesome demise. As the investigation proceeds, evidence points to one suspect, John Kramer, the man known as Jigsaw, who has been dead for over 10 years. Jigsaw is written by Michael and Peter Spierig, known for their work on the movie Winchester. It's written by Josh Stolberg and Pete Goldfinger. Both are known for their work on Piranha 3D and Sorority Row. The film stars Matt Passmore as Logan Nelson, Tobin Bell as Jigsaw slash John Kramer, Laura Vandervoot as Anna, and Callum Keith Rennie as Detective Halloran. I couldn't wait to get to these next two films. Throughout the marathon, I've been taking notes, reacting to old plot details and intricacies that I might have missed in the Saw movies that I've seen, but this movie was one where I really had to pay attention to. I took notes, I paused the film, I reversed it, and I just wanted to make sure that I didn't miss a step since I had nothing to reference prior to watching this movie. During the time of this film's release, I remember being in a personal rut. Movie going was something that I couldn't afford to do back then. Anytime I wanted to go see a movie, I either had to save a big chunk of my paycheck or just wait for a big Marvel tentpole movie. In 2017, it was was really rough for me. I had to be pretty selective back then. While doing my research, I noticed that the movie still has a rotten rating on the website. However, the audience approval rating is the highest the franchise has ever been since the original Saw. And as such... My anticipation heading into this review went through the roof dramatically. So, I went into this movie completely blind. I hadn't seen any of the traps, the actors, or the plot twists, which made this review so much more interesting right off the bat. Saw the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo, was a dud of finale for the franchise, and Lionsgate 
knew they had to take another shot at it. So I'm pleased to announce that they actually did a good job with Jigsaw. The movie isn't mind-blowing or spectacular, but it's such a dramatic improvement over the previous films in so many aspects that I had to give it props. I know the seven-year gap would have given the filmmakers better cameras and better production value, just on the technological advancement at the time, but everything else also just falls in line with more competent filmmaking, more technological maturity, and they got a whole new cast of directors and writers for this movie. This is by far the most focused and competent that the franchise has been since the first two movies. The lighting, the set design, the costumes, and the traps, they all look really good. But there's still a lot of grit to the way that the movie is shot, the way it looks, and the way it feels. Kind of harkening back to the original two Saw movies. And this movie just really does represent a return to form. It calls back to things that John Kramer used to do to his victims in Saw 1 and 2, like cutting out the puzzle pieces on a victim's body, giving the victims a fair shot at surviving by learning from their mistakes. Meanwhile, the Hoffman era was mostly just a masochistic exercise of torture porn. (laughs) The games were rigged from the start, and the only people to survive were those that were fortunate enough not to be in the crosshairs of Hoffman's vendetta with his co-workers. Now with the new writing and directing team, the franchise got a much needed injection of fresh new blood. Even though the writers and directors didn't have much filmmaking experience, they did a far better job than Gruder, Melton, and Dunstan did with Saws 4 through 7. But the film is not without its flaws though. There were many times when I was watching this movie where I was left scratching my head at the plot holes and the complicated timeline of events. Unfortunately, they also forgone the urge to set up future installments in this movie. Everything kind of ties up nicely by the end. The movie bounces between two timelines. Timeline number one is right as John Kramer is about to put Gordon into the bathroom trap. John has no accomplices at this point and works primarily alone. The second timeline takes place 10 years after John was killed. Now, I can see where most of the audience's confusion lied, since this movie is kind of jumbled in the way that it's deciding to bounce between the two timelines. Many times I found myself asking, when did this happen exactly? We do get clarification, though. The five people subjected to this movie's game are actually in the first timeline. They call this the murderer's trial. Anna, Mitch, Ryan, Carly, and an unknown person who gets killed at the start of the trap are placed in a series of events in a barn. The story frames it as if the trap was going on simultaneously as the current day police officers are finding bodies of the victims of the murderer's trial. The plot twist, though, is that the Jigsaw copycat is using decoy bodies in timeline number two to frame the series of murders on a corrupt detective by the name of Halloran. The actual murderer's trial was the first game Jigsaw ever set, and it takes place in that first timeline. The person responsible for recreating the murderer's trial in the second timeline is a forensic scientist by the name of Logan Nelson. The plot twist that he was behind it all is kind of obvious, but the flashbacks into why he went through all this effort is comfortably justifiable. I kind of liked his backstory. 
Logan isn't just copying Jigsaw to literally become the next John Kramer. He learned from John after he survives his part in the murderer's trial. He was that person that was mysteriously thrown into the first trap and that we all assumed was killed off screen. So he applied what he learned as a way of getting revenge on his wife's murderer and the detective that let the murderer get away, and that was Detective Halloran. I think Logan's actor, Matt Passmore, is a decent actor, so when the twist occurs, I can actually buy into his physical and mental prowess, preparing him for everything that has happened. His demeanor is much more cunning than Mark Hoffman, and his motivations are far more sympathetic. I also really like the amount of screen time we got with Tobin Bell in this movie. I thought he would just serve the movie as a cameo, but he is actually pretty prominent towards the end of this film. Revealing him during the shotgun key trap was extremely exciting to me. He has a really neat dialogue with Anna and Ryan as he arms the traps that he puts them in. Then he leaves his mark on the film after Logan's work is finished. It's the callbacks and careful use of nostalgia for the movies that came before it that kind of makes this movie mean much more to me. And it makes me like this movie so much more. We're going to get into it right now, but I will say that the lack of traps left me a little bit disappointed. But the ones that we do get in this movie serve the overall narrative better than Saw 5 and the final chapter, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) Here are the three traps that I like the most in Jigsaw. Starting with the cycle trap. Heavily marketed in the trailers and posters of the film, the cycle trap is a cylindrical, bladed compactor that will shred anything that goes inside of it. Here, Mitch must atone for his part in the wrongful murder of Logan's nephew. Mitch had previously sold Logan's nephew a motorcycle with a bad brake line, and he knew it. So therefore, Mitch is lowered into the cylindrical trap, and he must reach deep to pull the brakes on a motorcycle that resembles the one that he sold Logan's nephew. Despite some weird CGI insert shots, I think this trap was extremely cool looking. The aftermath of Mitch's body when he's completely shredded apart is bloody disgusting. And overall, I think this trap is pretty good. Next up, I have the shotgun key. This one is elevated for me because of the involvement of John Kramer. Tobin Bell is so good in this scene, and the fact that he's involved in the rules of the game is really cool. This is the first trap that he's been inside of since Saw 3 with Lynn's trial. The game is simple. The shotgun is loaded with the key to their survival, but they must not take things as they seem, as they may be backwards, as he tells them. The wording of the rules is complex, yet simple as well. Anna understands it as she has to kill Ryan in order to be set free. She fails to remember that he mentioned the word backwards. So therefore, she unloads the singular shotgun slug into her own face, killing herself. Ryan, left devastated and alone on the ground, discovers that Jigsaw meant quite literally that the slug had the key to the chains inside it. Unfortunately, because Anna spent the round... It shattered the keys that were in there for their survival, and Ryan is left on the floor to rot and die, which he ultimately does. It's a great use of Jigsaw's wordplay, great plot twist overall, and sadly, it marked the end of the murderer's trial, with all of the participants failing their test. And now, the last trap I want to highlight is the laser collars. 
This trap comes at the very end of the film as we discover that Logan and Halloran have been taken captive and are now strapped to laser collars. These collars will slice their face apart unless they can confess to their sins and their crimes. Halloran volunteers Logan against his will. Logan's collar is then activated and we believe that Halloran has won. But like the first saw, Logan rises from the floor and reveals that he was behind the copycat killings all along. He was testing Halloran's morality, to which he failed, therefore activating the collar and turning Halloran into a demigorgon from Stranger Things. <laughs> now, the effects of the collar going off are a bit dated by today's standards, but I do appreciate that they implemented modern technology into this film. It really does update the production value and makes it feel like this is Saw of a new generation. It's a cool payoff and a gratifying conclusion to the film. Now let's get to the traps that I didn't like, starting with Edgar's test. The film opens with a man named Edgar who's running from the cops. He gets to the top of a building where a jigsaw device is waiting for him. Jigsaw puts Edgar in the unfortunate position of either triggering the device and starting the murderer's trial, or getting shot down by the police. Edgar is placed in a lose-lose situation, which I don't mind in this case, but the character is killed off-screen anyway, even after surviving his test. Narratively, I understand why Edgar had to die, but I still think that the trap is a bit lame and simple. Not of the quality that John Kramer would have done. And next up, I have the grain silo. This is one of those traps that is really contrived on Jigsaw's precognition to predict what the outcome of the murderer's trial was going to be. Carly and Logan had to have been killed or removed from the game by this point in order for this to work, and Ryan had to be the person that accidentally stepped into the leg wire trap. It's because this was a scenario that played out exactly as Jigsaw wanted, Ryan must be the person to pull the lever to cut off his own leg, freeing up Anna and Mitch from the silo. I like the idea of them coordinating together. However, I don't feel like the team earned this payoff. Up until now, there was not any sort of chemistry between the three, indicating that they would want to help one another out in this trap. Also, the danger of the silo doesn't come from the grain itself. The danger came from the sharp objects that rained down on them after they got trapped in the grain. It was just kind of mediocre. And that is it. There wasn't a third trap I disliked. And that's because this movie had some solid, fair games in here. They weren't bad enough to make the list, but they weren't memorable enough to get a mention. The movie is definitely toned down from Saw the Final Chapter, Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> in the sheer plethora of traps at their disposal. But they all mostly work for Jigsaw's plot. I really enjoyed this movie, and I think I would consider it in the top five Saw films of all time. I'll hold off on keeping it to that accord until I finish Spiral and Saw 10, but I think Jigsaw is a solid 3.5 out of 5 for me. Now, I'm going to throw some filmmaking factoids at you before we move on to our final film of the marathon, Spiral from the Book of Saw. So the first filmmaking factoid is that this movie was specifically written as a way to minimize on the torturous and extreme violence of the previous series installments. They heard enough criticism about this movie being all about torture porn and stuff like that. The second one goes back to what I said about the advancement in technology. In fact, this was the first film to feature a jigsaw video being played on a flat screen television. 
That's kind of cool. <laughs> this is also the first Saw movie that doesn't immediately follow the events of the film that came before it. It features the biggest jump in time, which was 10 years. And that's for obvious reasons. This film was made seven years after Saw the final chapter. Now, this one's kind of cool. Hawkeye audience members, if they paid close attention to the clues, would have caught on to the plot twist very early on in the film. The murderer's trial participants never refer to Jigsaw. And when John Kramer arrives to speak to Anna and Ryan, they never refer to him as the Jigsaw killer, and they're actually surprised by his appearance. This indicates that there was a time dilation between the investigation and the game. Because if they were taking place in 2017, Ryan and Anna would have mentioned that John was dead or that Jigsaw was responsible for the traps. At this time of the game, Jigsaw was not notorious or known at all. Now the last factoid for Jigsaw. The film was originally titled Saw Legacy. But the team decided against taking the Dark Knight approach and called it Jigsaw to honor the horror icon instead. I was extremely impressed and happy with Jigsaw. I think it's a huge leap forward from Saw the Final Chapter 3D Electric Boogaloo. It's another big step forward from Saw 6 and Saw 5. Now with Jigsaw out of the way, we have come to the final film before Saw 10 releases on September 29th. It's time that we wrap up Saw-tember with Spiral from the Book of Saw. In 2021, Saw made a return in a pretty dramatic way. With some clever viral marketing, Spiral from the Book of Saw was revealed as an undercover cop drama from the perspective of longtime comedian Chris Rock. For the trailer to drop that this is a direct sequel to Jigsaw and the Saw franchise, it had the internet stunned at the time. In Spiral, a criminal mastermind unleashes a new twisted form of justice in the vein of Jigsaw. Directed by Darren Lynn Boozman, written by Josh Stolberg and Peter Goldfinger, the film stars Chris Rock as Detective Ezekiel Zeke Banks, Samuel Jackson as former officer Marcus Banks, Max Minghella as William Shank, and Marisol Nichols as Captain Angie Garza. Unlike Jigsaw, when Spiral from the Book of Saw released, I was capable of visiting the theaters quite often, but for some reason, the movie just kind of fell by the wayside for me. I just never got around to watching it theatrically or digitally at home. I was curious and compelled because they swung big with this one. They went out and got triple A actors into this movie, with the casting of Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson. Prior to this, the series had fallen into cheesy soap opera quality with Saw 6 and the final chapter, so seeing them bring in some big name actors and talent was pretty cool to see. And not only that, they brought back Darren Lynn Boozman, who directed Saw 2. Critical buzz for this film was lower than I would have wanted it to be, only scoring 37% on Rotten Tomatoes. However, the audiences disagreed and thought that this was a decent reimagining of the series. This was the movie I was most excited for going into September. I'm going to be honest with you. It's the most recent Saw film, and it gave me hope and optimism that the traps would be more modern and really creative. So today I woke up, I got a morning snack, and I watched Spiral for the first time. And my initial impressions of the film were extremely positive. 
Although I enjoyed Jigsaw for bringing some respect back to the series, I think Spiral's look, perspective, and style automatically shoots it up the ladder higher than Jigsaw in my film rankings. It's shot beautifully and grimy. It's dark, but comedic in spots. And it's story-driven, but it's also not boring. You can tell that bringing back Darren Lynn Boozman and bringing back the writers of Jigsaw allowed them to take a step back to focus on the elements of making a good horror film. And the number one rule of making a good horror film is that you have to actually care about the characters before you kill them off. Most modern horror movies forget about this rule and they're quick to hack and slash every cannon fodder piece of shit on the screen. Specifically, movies like Halloween Ends and the latest Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they do this really poorly. You don't care about anyone that these horror icons are killing on screen. They're just doing it mindlessly. An overindulgence in gore and torture porn is part of the bad reputation that Saw received over the years. They went in on the gross-out horror, but left out the most important parts of making a good horror movie. There was no character development. Spiral, from the book of Saw, falls directly in line with rule one. By giving us big-name character actors like Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson, just their presence alone makes the movie feel more impactful. Chris Rock is a snarky, by-his-own-rules undercover cop whose father, played by Samuel L. Jackson, made life tough for him growing up. The theme of this film is that the sins of the past will come back to haunt you. And for Chris Rock's character Zeke, those sins were that of his father's police corruption. Much like the previous entries in the series, Spiral's game is centered around an entire police force. Each person on the force is more corrupt and more viler than the next, and each police officer slowly gets picked off one by one by a new Jigsaw copycat killer. They are taught lessons about their brutal police motives. I do like the police characters in this movie more than the previous Saw installments. Each officer feels real, they feel unique and competent, well, for the most part. So when they get their comeuppance, it feels gratifying and well-earned, paying back to what I said about rule one. You gotta have the audience care about the characters that you kill on screen. Big spoiler alert for those who have not yet watched Spiral. The big plot twist of the movie is that Zeke's rookie partner, William Shank, is the Jigsaw copycat. I found the plot twist to be believable and kind of well done. Max Minghella's performance matches the character's motivations really well. And when he needs to be evil at the end, he really does a good job of portraying an evil persona. Speaking of his motivations, Spiral returns to the successful formula that made the first couple movies great. That formula is that we have a killer with a code and a conscience. They are carrying out these deadly traps because they believe what they're doing is right and that they are reforming people around them. Now before we get to Shank's traps, I did want to bring up some of the things I didn't like about the movie. I praise Chris Rock's appearance as adding heft to the cast, but not all of his acting is great here. Some scenes, in particular the undercover cop scenes, he does really well in, because there he is able to play within his own range of charisma and charm. He can throw around a few jokes while also being on the job as a police officer. But there are other scenes that are just dreadfully painfully acted by him. There's one scene where he checks in on a victim's wife, Here, he is supposed to play the character as sympathetic and emotionally connected to her, but Rock comes off sounding kind of robotic. 
it almost sounds like he's reading his dialogue off instead of portraying it. And I think your enjoyment of this movie is going to predicate on your suspension of disbelief in Chris Rock as a serious actor. The next negative for me was the staging of the traps. I'm not talking about the traps themselves. I'm talking about the new Jigsaw voice and the puppet. The new Jigsaw voice is incredibly weird. I think they were kind of going with the voice of a little kid, but it comes off as incredibly feminine. It's not creepy or imposing at all. I think the idea was to make it sound like William Shank was using a text-to-speech app on his recordings. But call me old-fashioned, I like the grizzled, gravelly nature of Tobin Bell's voice. And it's sorely missed here. I think that there might have been a way that the filmmakers could have used a deep voice modulation to make the game sound intimidating and scary, while also making it different from John Kramer's voice since he's been dead for over 10 years now. What a missed opportunity there. Also, the new puppet that they used in this movie is atrocious. The props team went all in on the pig theme. They got pig masks, they got pig marionettes, and electing to make the new puppet of the game a pig marionette, I don't like the look of it. I like the significance of it being attached to Marcus Banks's fate, and it kind of alludes to what is going to happen to Samuel L. Jackson's character by the end, but I just think that the doll is poorly designed and it's... It has no marketing value whatsoever. I don't think it was going to sell much merchandise at all. In fact, I don't think anyone liked it. And there's a reason why they went back to Billy the Puppet in Saw 10. And now it's time for the final round of traps in our saw Timber marathon. I want to get this out of the way first. Spiral is the first film in the series where I didn't dislike any of the traps in games. For as little as infrequent as we get them... The traps here are pretty solid, and they're excellent. There was a total of six traps, which is the lowest total of any of the Saw movies, but I like them all. And here are the three that I like the most, starting with Zeke's trial. When I mentioned that character development is everything for a horror film, this is the trap where it mattered the most. Having Samuel L. Jackson strung up and bleeding out is an incredible visual, because we know and we care about Samuel L. Jackson. His death at the hands of the police officers is incredibly tragic and brutal, but it also serves a strong politically charged narrative, and it's an effective punchline for the entire movie. I think it was a very good way for the film to go out. Next up, I have the finger trap. We've all played with those cheap Chinese finger traps that you can win from a carnival or a pizza parlor for like five tickets. Spiral takes that concept and amps it up. In the finger trap, Detective Fitch is idly bathing in a water tank that will fill up to an active live wire that will electrocute him to death. His only escape from the trap is if he bites down on a release mechanism and rips off his fingers. The visual of the fingers getting pulled apart from their sockets and then being torn off is one that I'm probably never going to forget. It's horrific, disgusting, and insane to watch. I really like the idea of this trap. And next up, and this is my favorite trap of the movie, we have the glass grinder. Zeke is placed in a room with a former cop named Pete. Pete was responsible for killing William's father, who was unarmed at the time. Pete is strung up in front of a cannon that will shred him and fire glass at him. Zeke must then choose to let Pete die for his actions or retrieve the key and stand in the line of the shrapnel in order to get Pete out alive. I love traps that are this simple. 
This one in particular is also very action-packed, so it moves pretty quickly. And this one even gets bonus points because Chris Rock is in the mix of this. He gets blasted by glass, and ultimately, Pizza comes to his wounds by the time Zeke saves him. The spectacle of this trap is amazing, and I really did enjoy it. So that is it for Spiral from the Book of Saw. There are a couple other traps that I enjoyed but weren't notable enough. And if you haven't already got the impression that I really, really liked this movie, then here's my official rating. Spiral from the Book of Saw gets a 4 out of 5 for me. It's the first time in the series that a film has gotten a 4 out of me since Saw 1 got a a 4.5. I enjoy the risk that the writers and directors took in making this Saw movie socially relevant, and it thrust two well-known actors into the universe pretty well. The gritty but well-shot style makes this movie infinitely higher in quality than any of the movies that came before it. And I highly recommend that you watch this movie. It's available to stream on, I believe, uh, Hulu. When all is said and done after I finish reviewing Saw 10, next week I will compile the ratings I gave to all 10 of these movies and rank them accordingly. I will also crown my top three traps of the franchise. So be sure to listen to that next week. Now, before we end the show, let's get into some filmmaking factoids and call it a day. The first factoid is that Chris Rock was such a huge fan of the franchise that he pitched this idea to Lionsgate himself. As a result, they made him one of the lead actors, a co-writer, and an executive producer on the film. Pretty cool. (laughs) I noticed this one right away, but in the scene in the police basement when Zeke is trying to save Angie... The vault door for the basement has the words Jules and Vincent on it, which is an obvious reference to the characters played by John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. (laughs) That's a pretty cool Easter egg. Now, Darren Lynn Boozman wanted a subway tunnel, but he was told that the logistics weren't in the budget. He ultimately held his ground, though, and eventually they built a subway tunnel to meet his needs. It's a tiny set that uses forced perspective to make things look bigger than they actually are. Really cool filmmaking there, and something that I don't think they would have done for any of the other previous Saw movies. If you noticed in the movie, William Shank, played by Max Minghella, is the only victim whose trap is not fully explained via a full playback of the killer's tape. It is switched off before it even gets to that point. Nor is his death shown in a flashback, Therefore, it foreshadows that he is the killer. We got two more factoids. The second to last is that Samuel L. Jackson only agreed to be in this film if he was given an interesting death. In the film, he is gunned down by the police that fire wrongfully at him after the trap he is suspended in aims a gun at the SWAT team. It's poignant to the message of the film. It serves as his atonement for the brutality that his force showed to unarmed victims throughout the movie. And now, the final factoid. This is the first film of the franchise to not include Tobin Bell. He's shown in a picture, but he actually doesn't appear on screen or his vocals are used. This was also the third film where the phrase game over isn't used. This one is so significantly different from the other Saw movies in the way that it's crafted. And with that, we have officially come to the end of saw Timber. Next week, we'll return to our original format of one film per week, starting with Saw 10. 
I really want to express my gratitude to everyone who listened to these episodes. I had a lot of fun watching these movies with a fresh new perspective. And October is shaping up to be a great month for the show. I want to run down our calendar for the month. Starting with October 2nd, we have Saw 10. October 9th, we have Hereditary, a movie that I've never seen before, so that one's going to be a good one. October 16th, we're doing Hocus Pocus. <laughs> I love that movie, and I can't wait to watch it again. It's going to become something of an annual tradition for me, and I can't wait to gush about it. <laughs> October 23rd, The Nightmare Before Christmas, a movie that I was really obsessed with when I was a young man, when I was in my teens and when I was a kid. I haven't watched it in maybe about 15 years, so that's going to be another really good episode to watch. And then we finish off October on October 30th with Five Nights at Freddy's, which is a movie based on the video game. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, the handle is PC with Gil. You could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That would do me a huge favor. Thank you, guys. You can follow the show on Spotify. And don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. I want to thank you all for listening. And now that we're at the end of September, it is officially... Game over.